Uh, well, it is great to be gathering with you again this morning uh, with some of the mandates handed out last week, you know, at the end of our gathering last week. I was like, well, hopefully we're here next week. Praise God. Uh, here we are. So I'm um, excited to be here with you, and I'm excited to be preaching as well. I was joking with Samantha earlier uh, this week that when I don't preach for a couple of weeks, I preach really long. So buckle in. Just kidding, but seriously. Uh, so I am really excited, though, for this morning because we're going to be kicking off this brand new series, uh, and it's called Half-Truths, Lies That the Church Taught Us. And it's a series that we're going to be going through for the next four weeks uh, where we're going to be examining some lies that have infiltrated the Christian church and have sought to lead astray, if possible, uh, God's people from trusting in God's character and in God's word. And so the lies that we're going to be talking about are those which intentionally, and that's the key word, they intentionally present God in a way that is different than how he has told us that he is, which is why this is so damning for us and in our lives. And one of the things that I've come to understand in the last number of years is how little that we are taught as Christians to have discernment. Right, like when we're listening or hearing sermons, like in places like this or podcasts or Christian television, we've come to believe that if someone says that they are a Christian, then what they say about God just must be true. So if they say, I'm a Christian, then all of a sudden all of our defenses are down. It's like we turn off our brains and we're like, great, you love Jesus, just tell me what the Bible says. And so we lack a lot of discernment, especially if they have a verse that they kind of take and they make it out of context and twist it to say something else. We're like, well, it's in the Bible, so it must be true. Right? We, we have not been taught uh, to hear the message, to go and to study God's word for ourselves and to see if what they said matches with what God has revealed in his word to be true about him and about us. In fact, the opposite of true. The opposite is true. Now, we are often taught to simply believe the man of God or the woman of God. Don't question the prophecy that someone gives you. Just accept it blindly. That's kind of what we're, we're told because it's disrespectful to call into question these extra special holy anointed people, right? Don't touch the man of God. Oh, he's holy and super holy, right? Like we're, we're taught to not do that. No, we're called to never do that because it's disrespectful. And listen, I'm not all about slandering people who think differently than I do, whether Christian or non-Christian. Like that's not the goal of, of any of this. But the goal is that when we as Christians walk into God's word and we're listening to things, we need to have a lot of discernment, especially when there are public ideas that are presented publicly and they are wrong about the character and the nature of God as revealed in the Bible. For us as Christians, that's a big deal. When someone lies about the character and the nature of God, we should not just sit by and say, well, they say they love Jesus, so that's fine. No, instead, we as God's people don't sit idly by and let lies about God's character and his nature and his word continue to thrive in the world among us, especially among people who would call themselves Christian brothers and sisters, right? It's, think about how much you must not love someone to let them believe a lie to be true. And so as Christians, if we genuinely love one another and someone is caught in a lie, we should reveal that to them through God's word so that they're not caught in that lie any longer. That's not loving to just leave them there. We are called to a higher standard. It's God's people. We are called to fight for truth even when it's hard. Interestingly enough, Paul, uh, one of the men who were led by God the Spirit to write the very words of God in the Bible, was a man who both called out false teachers when they misspoke about God's character and God's word, but he also encouraged others. 
that when they heard him preach, he encouraged them to take, not just take his word for it, but to take what he said, examine it in light of God's word, search the scriptures and see if it's true. Specifically, the Jews of Berea in Acts chapter 17 are men who were encouraged because of this. They took what Paul said, they searched the scriptures diligently, examining God's word daily to see if the things that Paul said were true. And Christians, we must do that as well. We must. We need more of that in our world. And for those of you, maybe you're here and you're just exploring Jesus, we need you to do that as well. Don't just, when somebody says they're a Christian, just say, well, everything they say about God must be true, right? I don't want you to do that either. I, I want all of us to walk in and to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. We should use our minds in the worship of God. And if you're a follower of Jesus, we desperately need discernment between what is clearly right and clearly wrong, but we need to go a step beyond that. Because Christian discernment isn't just knowing the theologically accurate from the theologically inaccurate. Uh, towards this end, and so this is the, the sermon that we have today, we have biblical promises to stop viruses and sickness. That's the lie that we're attacking uh, today. Uh, and Charles Spurgeon, he was uh, an English preacher from a few generations ago, he said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong, it's knowing the difference between right and almost right, between right and almost right. And I love that. That's really what has fueled this sermon series because spotting the difference between right and wrong is fairly easy, right? If someone came in here this morning and they stood up here to preach and they said, listen, everyone, Jesus was not fully God and fully man, and we can't trust the Bible. Oh, I mean, we read it and we just pick out, what do, we, what do you like in here and what do you not? And we just get to pick and choose. It's kind of like going to a buffet. I like a little bit of this. I like a little bit of that. I don't ever eat that, right? Like if they came up and said that, you would immediately say, uh, no, false teacher, right? Like that would be clearly, easily enough. We'd all say, that guy is whack. And we'd bounce real, real fast, right? That's easy. But where it gets difficult is where someone gives us half-truths. That's where it gets really, really tricky. They give half of the story. And if they intentionally give half of the story and intentional, they lie to us. I think about that all the time with my kids. My kids, someone is screaming upstairs. And I'm like, what's wrong? He hit me. Okay, why did he hit you? I spit in his face. Okay, well, I would have hit you too, right? Like, like when you know the whole story, you're like, okay, well, you were intentionally lying about this. Right, in the same way, this is exactly what happens with these false teachers. They end up lying about the character and the nature of God because they find it offensive and they hate it. See, there are people that call themselves preachers and pastors and apostles and prophets and teachers and, and Bible teachers who take the Bible out of context. They seek to mislead you, some of them unintentionally, just because they don't know any better. They might be newer to the Bible and they're trying to understand things. And there's a lot of grace for that. But for those who are intentionally doing this, they do so because they hate God's words and God's judgments, and they want you to believe their word over God's word, the Bible. And they don't want you to have any discernment, but instead they just simply want you to blindly follow whatever it is that they say. And here's where discernment is crucial, because I don't know if you know this or not, false teachers don't walk around with a big sign on their forehead that says, I am a false teacher, don't listen to me. Right, that would be a lot easier if that was tattooed on their forehead. You're like, well, I'm not going to listen to anything they say about Jesus because it's probably wrong. No, they don't do that. They are people who claim to love the Bible. 
They masquerade as faithful Bible teachers. They, have pre- they say they preach the Bible. They've memorized the Bible. That they are the ones who really see and discern things accurately from the Bible. Who say their teaching matches what the Bible teaches. They would say they are Bible people. Which leaves us very confused. Right? If this one Bible teacher says God's word says this. Another Bible teacher says God's word says this, and they are diametrically opposed. What do you do? Right? Somebody's clearly wrong. Right? How do you know what to do? What are we supposed to do as Christians? And this is where we need to be in the Bible for ourselves. We need to learn how to read and study the Bible, to take what we hear preached at our gatherings. And whenever we're listening to Christian television programs, and by God the Spirit's assistance, we need to discern what Scripture teaches and how it fits together so that we are not easily persuaded away from a sincere faith by the seared consciences of false teachers. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. God assures us that there will be those who depart from the faith because they have devoted themselves to deceitful spirits in the teaching of demons. Friends, what is at stake is our souls. This is massive. We need to be on guard. So in this sermon series, we're going to be talking about half-truths or intentional lies. We could have also called it that, intentional lies. Lies the church taught us. But, but instead, we, we have half-truths. The things that churches have taught. And our aim is to explain how these lies are incongruent with God's word. They don't match. But as we're walking through this, what I don't want you to do is just take my word for it. How terrible would that be? Well, Aaron said it. It must be true. No. I want you to take what we say as we're walking through God's word, as Nino's going to be walking through God's word. I want you to take it, pray diligently for wisdom and discernment, go into God's word, read the scriptures, study the word, and test what is being taught. And if what is said doesn't fit with God's word, Trust God's word, not the opinions of man. That should be what we all seek to do constantly. And if you're looking through that and you're like, man, Boz or Nina, you guys are wrong. Come and tell us. We want to know your argument from God's word because we don't want to be in error. That would be terrible. We want you to come say, man, I was reading through the argument here. I think you missed it. I will say, let me study that. Let's research. Let's talk. Let's walk. And then maybe if so, I will repent a million times over for it. And I will say, I'm sorry, I taught wrongly according to God's word because that's what we do as Christians. We sharpen one another, we encourage one another, we come to God's word together and we fight for God's word, not our words. This is what we do as Christians. So let's pray together and then we're gonna get into our topic for this morning, uh, which is the lie that we have heard uh, at a number of churches is that we have biblical promises to stop viruses and sickness. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. So, Father, we do thank you for another morning where we can gather together in person as a local church. What a cool thing in, in a day and age where that, I, I wouldn't think that would be a, a weird thing or a cool thing, but, but by your grace and through your kindness, you, you have uh, called us as people to gather, and so we gather joyfully underneath your word. I love that we get to see one another, hug one another, pray for one another, check in. I'm thankful for this church that you are planting And I pray that we would continue to see men and women who are far from Jesus come to know you as their God, Savior, and King. And that Christians would grow in their understanding and love of God's word. 
I pray that as we walk into this discussion this morning and into this series, that you would send God the Spirit to give great wisdom and discernment. That we might know the difference between truth and almost true. Help us to love Jesus more as a result of our time in your word and let us walk away from this time loving you more faithfully, joyfully, and expectantly. And we ask this for Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning, this is the lie that we're tackling, that we have biblical promises to stop viruses and sickness. And in this, we're going to be looking at two main things. We're going to be examining what Jesus has come to save us from and one of the scriptures typically taken out of context by false teachers that are used to promise us that if we walk by faith, we will never get any virus or sickness, including the coronavirus or Alzheimer's or cancer or dementia or a number of other things. So firstly, though, let's dive into the first one. What has Jesus come to save us from? What has he come to save us from? I don't think this is something that you necessarily sit down on a Saturday night, you know, for us after we put our kids down, just sit down and just say, mm, what did God come to save us from? But, but, but I, I guarantee you there, there are a few things that, that you might have swirling around in your mind. What did Jesus come to save us from? I'm going to give you real quickly two possible answers that I have heard from churches around us here in the southeastern part of Winnipeg. Here's two answers I have heard this past week. Some say that Jesus came, he died on the cross to save us from sickness. They say by his stripes, physically, we're all healed. It's a promise. That's why he came, so that we might have bodies that are healed from every infirmity here and now on the earth. We are promised, they say, that Jesus has died and risen from the dead to save us from every sickness, every sort of virus or sickness, and that if we are not living out a victorious life of health, it's because we don't recognize that Jesus has already purchased our healing. And we're told all we need to do is just to activate this, this healing power, this salvation from sickness in our lives. All that we need to do is follow a process, a proven process. We need to claim this salvation. We need to confess it, speak it out, declare it with our lips. And as we say them, those truths will get into our hearts and then we will come to believe them. And as we believe them, we will have faith to believe the promise. So they say, profess it, believe it, receive it. That is what Jesus has come to give us, salvation from sickness. That's one option people give. The other option is that people say that Jesus has come to save us from poverty. Poverty. That we are promised wealth and prosperity. And Jesus has died and risen from the dead to save us from poverty and to give us every financial blessing. In fact, they claim if we're not living out the victorious life in our finances, it's because we don't recognize Jesus has already purchased our salvation from poverty. So just speak out your blessing Tell the world what God is going to do for you. And as you speak it, you'll start to believe it and then you will receive it. God's blessing will surely come upon you. Friends, in both of these things, God is sort of like a magic genie or a divine vending machine. If we simply put in the right amount of coins, hit the button that we want, we will get exactly what we want out of this life. Nothing will touch us financially or and health-wise, COVID won't touch you, it won't touch your business, it won't touch your home, it won't touch anything that you belong to or own. Because Jesus has promised us salvation from these things. 
But is this what the Bible tells us that Jesus has come to save us from? That should really be the question. What does the Bible say that Jesus has come to save us from? Has he come to save us from viruses and sickness and poverty? Is that why he left the glories of heaven and put humanity alongside of his divinity and stepped into time to live a sinless life, to reveal to us God the Father and then suffering and dying on a cross and rising again bodily three days later? Did he come to do all of that so that in this life, you and I here earthly right now that we may be saved from viruses and sickness and poverty? Is that what we read in the Bible? Is this what Jesus modeled for us or the early church, the faithful men and women whose lives and teaching we have recorded for us in God's word? Is that how they viewed salvation? Salvation from sickness and poverty? I mean, is the call of Christianity, is the call of Jesus, come and be healed from all sickness and poverty? I have come to give you financial abundance and healthy lives. Is this the promise of Jesus for all of us right now in this earthly life? And the short answer can be found through reading any book in the New Testament or the Old Testament. Any of them. Pick one any of them, we could walk through and see, we are never taught as Christians that we have the ability to speak something into existence. Never are we encouraged to speak something until we believe it, and then we will receive it. Never. That teaching is foreign to the Bible. But do you know where it's massive? Do you know where this teaching thrives? New Age mysticism and animism. Anywhere where yoga and shamans and medicine men can be found, you will find this theology. It's what Deepak Chopra and Oprah believe and teach. It's what, if you remember a couple of years ago, there was a book called The Secret that came out. That's exactly what this is. It is completely foreign to the Bible. Never are we taught that Jesus has come to save us from sickness and poverty in this life. And, and I don't know why this is somewhere that these false teachers go to substantiate. But if you want to open up your Bibles with me, we're going to be in Romans chapter 10. We're going to be all throughout Romans uh, throughout this morning. But we're going to start in Romans chapter 10. I'm also going to have it on the screen for us. But we're going to start in Romans chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 9 and 10. This is where some of these false teachers go to substantiate their teaching, to certify their teaching. And this is what God's word says. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And these false teachers, they rip this verse completely out of context and they twist it to say that Paul is writing here in this verse about the salvation that we all have and they say it comes from this word sozo which is true this is the word in Greek if you're not a Greek speaker uh, that, that's what it is or this is kind of like an Englishized uh, uh, variation but we would just say salvation because Greek is probably not your first language it's probably all Greek to you but uh Bad dad joke. I know. Um, so they look at this word salvation, sozo, which is here at the end. Uh, is here in uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. And they say sozo. They claim that it means that Jesus has come to give us salvation from sin 
and salvation from financial ruin or poverty, a kind of financial death, and salvation from sickness, a kind of death. So this is the only truth. But they add in that one and that one. And they say that this sozo, this salvation, means it's all-encompassing for any kind of death that we may walk in, spiritual, financial, uh, or, or health-wise for us as Christians. But is this what this text says? Is that what Romans 10, 9 and 10 says? If so, great. But did you see the word sickness or financial security in there anywhere? No, you didn't. Or if you want to glance over all of Romans chapter 10 real quick, do you see sickness or financial security in there either? Nope, you don't. In fact, Romans chapters 9 to 11, do you see it anywhere? No. Do we even see this promise anywhere in the book of Romans? Nope, not there either. See, the real question here is, what has Jesus come to save us from? This is, this is vitally important for us as Christians. We should have a really good answer of what has he come to save us from. We, we talk all the time as Christians like, oh yeah, Jesus saved me. From what? That would be a great thing for you to be able to know the answer to, right? He saved me. From what? I don't, I don't know. Like a burning building? You caught in a burning building and Jesus ran in, captured you. Right? Like, what did he save you from? And that's the question. And this is why we need to, to be people who take what we hear and take it into God's word. Because we, when we read the context of Romans chapter 10, and we see it in context of Romans chapters 9 and 11, and we see how the book of Romans fits together overall, and how that book fits inside of the New Testament, and then how that book fits inside of God's big story. As we continue to do so, we're going to get a laser-focused view of what salvation is in God's own word. And so if you'll walk through, me, uh, through with me uh, in the book of Romans for a moment, we're going to see what Jesus has come to save us specifically from in the book of Romans up until chapter 10. I would love to stay here all day and just go through the whole book of Romans. We have to be out of here by noon. We don't even have a choice. Uh, so I couldn't even do that even if I wanted to. So uh, we're going to do kind of a flyover of Romans chapters 1 to 10. So if you want to skim over Romans chapters uh, 1 to 3 with me, maybe you even look at some of those big subject uh, titles in there. The really huge takeaway from Romans chapters 1 to 3 is that you and I are sinners when we stand before a holy God. Every single one of us. We're all born that way from birth and by nature. All of us are sinners, those who have rebelled against God's word. Every single one of us. Regardless of background or ethnicity or moral aptitude or religious persuasion or religious upbringing, all of us by nature and from birth stand before the only true and living God as sinners. We are those who have rejected God's word and God's judgments because we don't like the idea of submitting to him, but rather we want to be like God. We want to decide what is good and evil for ourselves. We want to establish what is God's word and is not God's word. Right? We want to be at the buffet line. I don't like that verse. It's not there. Don't pay attention. Right? And we don't like God's judgments. Oh, did God really say that the, the penalty of that is death? I don't like that. Right? And, and we do that, all of us, because we think that we would be great gods. Right? 
we love ourselves. We think that we're pretty awesome. We think if God judged things the way that we did, man, God would be great. And this is the problem. See, we love us too much. And this is all of our condition. We have all, the Bible says, gone to war with and committed divine treason against the king of the universe, the judge over all creation, the maker of heaven and earth. We want his job because we want to decide for ourselves all things. And all that we deserve because of this treason against him is judgment, eternal punishment and damnation before God. However, what we see in Romans chapters 1 to 3 is that God is merciful and kind. God has made a way for us to not face the consequences of our sin before God. For although we have all sinned, Romans chapter 3 verse 23, God has made a way for us to be justified. He's made a way for us to be justified. Which means that we can be declared innocent when we stand before his judgment seat. But it's not by our own good works or by being moral or becoming super religious. No, we have the opportunity to be justified by his grace, his undeserved favor and kindness as a gift. Not a wage. It's not something that we earn, but it's a, a gift. Through what? Through the redemption, the payment in full that is in Christ Jesus, whom God the Father put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And propitiation means that Jesus has stood condemned in our place, facing the wrath and the judgment of God the Father that we have earned because of our divine treason. So when Jesus, God the Son, stood condemned in our place as our substitute, he faced all of the wrath and judgment that we deserve to pay for eternity. All of the wrath that was being stored up against us because of our sin. And all of this is to be received by faith. So the only hope that you and I have when we stand before God as guilty and treasonous enemies of God is the blood of Jesus. That's our only hope. That's, that's the only thing that we have. When we stand before a holy God, it's the blood of Jesus. That God himself has come. God himself took upon himself the punishment that we deserve. God himself came and Jesus died in our place. See, that's why the word justification is such a beautiful one. We, we began to talk about this a little bit on Wednesday night at our small group. It means that God chose to look at us after we put our faith and trust in Jesus as someone who had never sinned and just as if we had always obeyed. This is now how God looks at us by grace and through faith in the finished work of Jesus alone. Isn't that a wild thing? That we deserve nothing but God's judgment? And then God, because of our faith in Jesus, decides to look at us just as if we had always obeyed, just as if we had never sinned. We get the full work of Jesus applied to our account, and we have done none of it. We deserve nothing but judgment, and yet he comes and gives justification. This is beautiful. So we are saved from facing the judgment of God. This is what Paul is writing laboriously over and over and over again. And every book of the Bible screams this from the beginning to the end. That if we want to be declared innocent before God, the great salvation that we have is that this judgment of God must be met and it must be met in Jesus alone. 
He's come to save us from the judgment that we should have paid. And then we are saved to adoption. So we're saved from the wrath of God to adoption. Now we who are enemies get to become sons and daughters of the living God. That is wild. And the salvation from God the Father's wrath against our divine treason comes by faith in the promise of God and in the work of Jesus. Not by anything that we do, but by what Jesus has done for us. And this is what Romans 4 talks about. That just as Abraham was justified before God by faith, not by works, so we are justified before God by faith in the finished work of Jesus. We are justified by works. They're just not ours. Isn't that wild? We're justified before God by the works of Christ in our place. And then Romans 5 assures us that we are justified by faith, that Jesus has paid the penalty of our sin, facing all of God the Father's wrath, so that we sing, all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. And that is great news. The judgment that we have faced, and it was terrible, has been paid by Jesus. And because we have been justified by Jesus, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Look with me in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we're going to read together verses uh, 3 to 11. Verses 3 to 11. Because we've been justified by Jesus, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But also this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Did you get that? Isn't that amazing? We rejoice in our victories. No, we, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For a while, we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare die. But God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, he died for us. While we were treasonous people against, his king, against the king and the kingdom, he died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from sickness. Nope. Oh, sorry. We'll be saved by him from poverty. Oh, no, not there. Isn't it amazing? It's that same word, sozo. Saved, what we see in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 10. Does it say that we're saved from sickness or poverty? Isn't that anywhere? No. We're saved from the wrath of God. Isn't that interesting? So when we're wondering what does this word mean, we look at what this word is in the Greek, and we see where is this used in the rest of this book. You first look in the immediate context, and then you say, okay, this book. What is this book? How does this book use this word? This is how this book uses this word. Salvation from the wrath of God. Text continues. For if while we were enemies... Oh, sorry. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Sorry for that. Much more now that we are reconciled, 
shall we be saved, sozo, by his life. Again, his place, him taking our place. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, Jesus has come to save us from the wrath of God the Father that we have earned and deserved. One more place I want to take us to is Romans chapter 8. Flip over with me. Uh, Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at verses uh, 18 to 30. God's word says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, again, not the victories, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation itself, does it have salvation in this present moment? No. It is waiting, eagerly, groaning, to be put back right. It's, Jesus has come already, ushered in salvation, but it's creation it's saying, great, no more thorns and thistles. Everything is back. No, it's groaning, expectantly waiting. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, which if you've been through childbirth, it's, it looks not fun. But not fun. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. See that? who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. In this present world? Uh, no. We along with creation are waiting eagerly, groaning, expecting, longing for Christ to come and to set all things right. It is not a present reality. It is a future glory and hope that we have as Christians. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. I know that just blew your mind. Oh, that's not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is interesting. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Which means these are things that we will all walk through. Right? Will these things do that? I, I don't know. Will they? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, and this is good news. This is very good news. So firstly, we see Jesus, Jesus came to save us from the wrath of God the Father. Then Jesus gives us the hope, the future hope, that one day everything sad will be untrue. The effects of sin will be removed. And we, along with creation, are groaning in expectation for that day. See, and this is where the false teacher is almost right. They're half right. That there are these future promises of God, one day where everything will be perfect. Our bodies will no longer break. We won't have to go to Pan Am. This day is coming. Praise God. 
One day is coming where we will have no financial lack. We will lack nothing. But the problem is that these false teachers want all of these things true now. In this life. And when they claim that God has promised them to have this now, in this life, they lie about the promises of God and the character and nature of God. They make him out to be a God that is not true of the God of the Bible. They create a God in their own image. A God who gives promises to be declared and spoken into existence. As if we are like God and can speak things into existence. Friends, there is one God. It is not you. And praise God, it is also not me. Praise God, it is not me as well. Now, does this mean, does this mean, you might be wondering, as we are waiting patiently for the coming kingdom of Jesus, does that mean we just refuse to pray and ask God for health or financial blessing? No, no, because we have been transferred from being the enemies of God to now the sons and the daughters of God through faith in the salvation of Jesus. And we know our father is a good father. In my own life, and I know in many of yours as well, you've prayed that God would provide financially for something and guess it, and God did. And you're like, praise God, praise God. I don't know how that money, I don't even know where that came from. Praise God. Or someone was sick and you prayed for them, you anointed them with oil, and guess what? God healed them. Praise God. But is that always what God must do here and now in this earth? No. Oh, but praise God when he flexes and demonstrates to us that he is worthy of our, of our worship and our affection. Praise God when he does that, but praise him when he doesn't. Because our greatest enemy is not Sickness, our greatest enemy is not financial ruin. Our greatest enemy is that we stand before a holy God and we deserve nothing but just judgment. That is our greatest issue, brothers and sisters. So that we pray in faith, we also know from time to time God's ways aren't our ways. So I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't live for the things of this earth which are quickly passing away. Don't, live, don't seek your lives to amass riches here and now in this earth where moth and rust and thief will take them away. Instead, live for his kingdom and store up treasures there. Stand on his actual promises for us. And if someone tries to convince you that Jesus has come to save you from sickness and financial ruin, know that they are not doing so from God's word. They're not. Jesus has not come to be your divine vending machine or your butler or your magic eight ball. Jesus has come, God the Son has come, laying humanity alongside of his divinity to save you from the wrath of God that you deserve to pay. Manipulating God's word and forcing it to say that Jesus came to save you from sickness or financial ruin is a blatant lie. And it comes from the father of lies, Satan. And those who preach such things will surely face the judgment of God for saying things that are untrue of who God is. So run to God's word. Test what you hear and turn away from evil. And at this point, you might be like, all right, Boz, I'm with you. I've been with you from the beginning, bro. I knew, I, like, I knew where you were going. I'm with you. I'm with you, man. I'm with you. 
I understand that. But what about those verses in the Bible that I hear pastors and Bible teachers using and they say, this is for us today. Claim this as a promise today. What do we do with those? What do we do? Right, like, like Psalm 91 Verses 9 and 10. If you have a Bible, you can open with me. It's going to be on the screen in a minute. But Psalm 91, verses 9 and 10. This is what the Psalter says. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, and no plague come near your tent. What do we do with that? Ha! Gotcha, Boz. What do you do with that, man? Good question. My question to you would be, is this a promise that God has given to us so that we can memorize? And during times like COVID, we can just declare this verse over and over and over again so that the coronavirus won't come near our bodies or our homes or our businesses or our cars. Can we claim God as our refuge, declaring the promise of God in this season and no evil will be allowed to befall us and no pandemic come near us? And friends, we must remember a few things about the God of the Bible and what we do with the Bible when we come across things that you're like, maybe this is true. Here's three things I wrote down that we should do. In studying the promises of God given in the Bible, we must, firstly, recognize their historical setting. Where does this happen in the Bible? Who is it to? What is going on? Why is this promise here? That's what you should do immediately. Why is this here? Secondly, we see how all of Scripture is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus taught us in Luke chapter 24 that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in him. Paul taught us that as well. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 24 that all Scripture, the law, the prophets, and Psalms, all of the Old Testament points to him. They're about him. So all of the promises of God are found in Christ. So all these promises lead us to Jesus. And thirdly, There are things that we long for, as we talked a minute ago, of our future glory and our future hope. So let's run through that real quick. So firstly, we recognize, okay, so Psalm 91, 10. uh, 9 and 10, what do we do with that? What is the historical setting going on here? So I'm going to run us through really quickly what is going on. Well, if we remember, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned against God. And in God's judgment against Satan, our ancient foe, God promises there would be a son who would come. And the snake would bite his heel he would crush his head. There's a promise of a son who would come. And as we go through the book of Genesis, we see this expectation that this promised son would restore, get this, both mankind back into a right relationship with God, but also the earth itself back into a right relationship with God. If that reminds you of Romans, it should, right? Both of those things All of creation is groaning to be put back. All of mankind is groaning to be put back. Fast forward to Abraham in chapter 12, verses 1 and 3 of Genesis. We see the very first promise of God that he makes to Abraham is that through his family, the families of the earth, the nations of the earth would be blessed. And this promise continues from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And Jacob, if you remember, his name gets changed. He becomes Israel. And we see the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, too, God first sent Joseph into Egypt so that God might save the nations of the world during a time of increased famine. So already the promise of Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is partially sort of fulfilled. And God is like, see, I'm beginning to move here. This is the line that we're walking through. 
And Israel and the 11 other sons moved to Egypt. And then there's all the craziness at the end of the book of Genesis. And then at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the Israelites are enslaved by the Egyptians until God raises up Moses and Aaron and saves his people from slavery and brings them out of the land, promising to take them to a promised land that he would give to them. And as they are going, Moses gives to them the laws of God and calls God's people to faithfulness to God's laws. They've never been a nation. They've had 400 years in slavery. And God's like, all right, guys, this is how you be a nation. Here's your laws. Here's your things. This is what you do. This will be what guides you. And they say, great, we've never run a nation. We don't know what we're doing. He's like, I got this. So he leads them. And in giving them this, the laws, God also lays out curses for them if they disobey God's laws. If they turn away from God, if they don't execute justice, if they don't take care of the immigrant and the sojourner and the widow and the orphan, if they turn their backs to them, God will take them out of the land that he has promised to give them. But if they obey and they worship him alone, he will keep them in the land and they will prosper as a nation. But God assures them at the end of Deuteronomy that guess what? They won't be faithful. Moses is like, will you obey all the laws of God? And they say, yes, we will. And he says, no, you won't. Which I imagine is like letting air out of a balloon. You're like, what? And he says, but... God will bring you back. You will get out of the land, but you'll be brought back. And that's what happens. They are faithless. They sin against God and they're removed out of the promised land. But God does bring them back. Not because they are awesome and faithful, but because God is. And that's the whole point. And into this context and through the generations that come afterwards, certain men of Israel, they begin to write songs. Psalms to God, reminding them of God's faithfulness to them as a nation, including Psalm 91, which reiterates God's word, God's promise to Israel, because they have made the Lord their dwelling place, the Most High who is their refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall them, and no plague will come near them. It's only when they as a nation start running after false gods that God, in disciplining them, calls foreign nations to come and dispossess them. Or if you remember in the wilderness when they're out there and they sin against God, God himself sends a plague and kills thousands of them. All of this is to show them that God will not be trifled with. God, God will not be trifled with. And it creates a holy fear in them of like, oh, we should obey God's word. And his people, as they went throughout the years, they wrote songs like this. And though they would be faithful for a season, then they would be faithless. And then faithful for a season, and then faithless. But God was always faithful. And, and that is the context of Psalm 91. It's remembering this promise that if they as a nation are faithful, God will lead them in their promised land. But if they are not, God will remove them. So that's the context of that. So how is that then fulfilled in Jesus See, this psalm points us to Jesus as its ultimate fulfillment. Jesus is the only one who was faithful to this. Sorry, not this. Was faithful to. Boop. This. Only Jesus was faithful to this. To Psalm 91 verses 9 and 10. Jesus is the only one who made the Lord his dwelling place. Forever, with no fault. He is the only one who made the Most High, God the Father, his refuge. 
and never faltered. He is the only one who should have never had evil ever befall him, nor should he have had any plague come towards his tent. But if you know something of the story of Jesus, you know that evil was allowed to befall him. Isn't that strange? This says that if you made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high is your refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. Yet Jesus himself, God himself, was faithful. But guess what? Evil was allowed to befall him. And the plague of our sin came upon him. And he suffered an excruciating death in our place, facing the consequences of God's judgment. It came near him to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you and I, men and women, who, who only deserve God's judgment, you and I who don't constantly make God our dwelling place, you and I who don't constantly make God our refuge, we are wretched people. We do not do this. I don't do this. I, I, look to, I look to health or to money or to various other things, relationships. I look to so many other things for refuges. Haven't you in the last nine months looked at things that are not the Lord as your refuge, and then they failed you, and you're like, that's a really bad refuge. So we are not faithful in this. None of us are faithful in this. We deserve God's judgment. We deserve plague. We deserve evil to befall us. But friends, for the joy set before him, Jesus, God the Son, took upon himself the evil and the plague that we deserve. This is what Psalm 91, 9 and 10 is all about. It's fulfilled in Jesus, not in us. Who among us has been faithful like Jesus? None of us. For the joy that was set before him, he took upon himself the consequences that we deserve so that you and I might have every blessing in the spiritual places in Christ given to us by grace and through faith. Friends, those who teach that Jesus has come to give us our best lives now, lives that are free of sickness and financial burden, are those who, as R.C., uh, sorry, as uh, R. Albert Moeller explained, they teach us a false gospel. Bad news. Its message is unbiblical and its promises fail. God never assures his people material abundance or physical health. Instead, Christians are promised the riches of Christ, the gift of eternal life, and the assurance of the glory and the eternal presence of the living God. In the end, the biggest problem with prosperity theology is not that it promises too much, but that it promises too little. The gospel of Jesus Christ offers salvation from sin not a platform for earthly prosperity. While we should seek to understand what drives so many people into this movement, we should never fail to see the message for what it is, a false and a failed gospel. And I don't know about you, I have a lot of friends of mine. I have family of mine. I have neighbors and colleagues, classmates, lots of things that are sucked into the lie that Jesus has come to save us from our greatest enemies, sickness and poverty. In the good news, the gospel of Jesus is left behind. Because many think that it's outdated or passe. 
But brothers and sisters, that's the goal of Satan, to diminish any thoughts about the wrath of God against you and how Jesus has paid it in full. And what's really at stake in all of this is the lie behind the lie. And it's that what Jesus has come to give you is not enough. What he's come to give you is not enough. See, Jesus has said he's come to take away the wrath of God. But we would rather have wealth and, wealth and, wealth and, and, uh, and bodily health. Jesus has said he's come to save us from sin, but we'd rather have health and money. What Jesus has promised you, salvation from the wrath of God the Father, is not enough. We've progressed away from Christianity and towards the worship of created things instead of the worship of the creator God. It's exactly what Romans 1 says. And yet Jesus is standing today offering us a promise that if we will confess our sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus has purchased our salvation by his blood and offers it to us today. Will we believe on him? See, this is the promise we can bank our lives on. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, remember the hope that we have in Jesus. Don't grow weary of hearing the gospel of our salvation. Remind yourselves of it often and rejoice in the future glory of the hope that we have. For the day is coming where we will enter into this glorious inheritance which Jesus has come to give in us. One day we will have bodies that have no maladies wrong with them at all. I won't have to wear glasses or contacts one day. When I wake up in the morning, for some reason my back, that I don't know what I did in the middle of the night, just, I'm like, what happened? I was just sleeping. That won't happen anymore. Your bodies that are getting older, can't do the things they used to be able to do, one day that will not be a problem anymore. One day we will not be those who lack anything, any good thing. And the day is coming when all of this will be true. But friends, in this world we will have trouble but take heart, Christ has overcome the world. And he's promised that he's going to prepare a place for you where tears and suffering and pain and injustice and lack don't exist. Not here in this life, but in the kingdom to come. And he's coming quickly. So we pray, yes, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. So God, I pray that you would continue to make us a people who love your word and know your word and trust your word. I pray that we would be a people who who take what we hear and take it back to your word and test it. I pray that you would preserve us from false teaching, from the thoughts that we have that, that lead us to distrust you and to fall away from you. I pray that you would preserve us and persevere us. And one of the beautiful things in praying that is, God, that we know that you have promised to persevere and preserve your people. It will not be done by us trying hard enough but it will be done because we have been saved in Christ. 
And so we long for the redemption of our bodies. We love you, God. We pray all these things in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.